Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Several years ago, there was a man named Mike Kirk who lived in Los Angeles, and he invented a new alarm device for cars. He felt that the typical honking car alarms were far too insensitive and would abruptly wake up sleeping neighbors in the middle of the night. So he invented Invisibeam. Maybe you've heard of it. Invisibeam is hardware that essentially wraps your car in an energy field, um, extending about a foot away from the car's metal and plastic. If someone steps into that energy field, a computerized voice begins to speak to them in firm but polite tones. (laughs) You're too close to this vehicle. Please step away. And then... If you fail to understand what Invisibeam is trying to communicate to you, Invisibeam starts to count down from 10. 10, 9, 8, getting louder as it goes. And if you don't move by the time it counts down all the way, the Invisibeam loudly announces, I am being tampered with. And when you finally step back from the car, it says, quite politely, Thank you very much. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking tonight about the Invisibeam and how it relates to the profound hiddenness of the human condition and the uh, boundaries and Berlin walls we set up. I'm thinking tonight of all the places in the Bible where the functional Invisibeam was activated when it comes to, like, the murderer Cain who slaughters his sibling and then asks God, am I my brother's keeper? That's the Invisibeam that says, you're too close. Please keep away. That's what we say to God. That's what the mumbler Moses says whenever he is asked by God uh, to set the people of Israel free from Egyptian captivity, and he says, I don't have the ability to speak. That's his way of saying, you're too close, God. Please step away. Or the flake Peter who denied knowing Jesus several times You're too close, God. Please step away. Uh, I find this to be true in my own ministry. You know, since I've been a priest for a long time, I can see it in people's eyes. I know when they're backing away. I just know it. When I try to encourage them to really give this thing a shot, you know, to really try to engage with God in a meaningful way because it'll help them. Or why don't you talk to me about what's really bothering you? Or why don't you go see a shrink because they're going to help you in profound ways? And they give me the nod, but it's not a nod. It's a nod that says, over my dead body. (laughs) Like, please back away. Please step back. You're too close. But I think that's our condition. You know, we have a lot going on inside. And a lot of it has to do with things we've never even expressed to another person. There's a lot of um, graying shame within us. There's a lot of unbelief. There's a lot of hostility. There's a lot of reactivity. There's a lot about our own personal family and the dynamics we've inherited that we have yet to admit, let alone work out. And we're carrying all this all the time with a lot of pressure. 
and we don't want to let on that there's a problem because that would mean that we're defective, right? Yeah, or we, were, we grew up defective or whatever. And so we just shield it and we tell people in very nice, sometimes very sanctified ways, back off. And yet, we have this gorgeous prayer from Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was a linguistic and theological genius who wrote the Book of Common Prayer, and he wrote this special prayer for Ash Wednesday, and I want you to turn open to it. So this is a homily tonight, meaning I'm going to talk about a theme, because today's theme is Ash Wednesday, unsurprisingly. So I'm going to be talking about the colic that is here on page one. I'm going to refer to it. It has kind of three basic parts that I'm going to talk about, because this is Thomas Cranmer's ingenious way of telling us that we don't need to be so afraid. This is his way of saying, you, you can engage in such a way where you open up a little. And if you do that, you won't die. More than that, you'll find everything that you're looking for. So the first part of this prayer is an acknowledgement. So I'm just going to read the first part. This is an acknowledgement. Cranmer's coming to the source. Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing you have made, and you forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Now let me stop there. Cranmer, the author of this prayer, begins with a great predicate. A great predicate that is a governing grand assumption about reality. Cranmer's great idea that he inherited, of course, but he firmly believed in it, is that um, the, the, the center of everything, the center that we know as God, uh, is disposed toward non-antagonism and non-aggression when it comes to your person. That God is more on your side than you think God is on your side. That God is more for you than you think God is for you. Uh, and this is why he says, you hate nothing that you've made. I can't say that. Um, so when I make an art project, you know, and I, I am spending more and more time on that in recent years, actually, but when I do a watercolor or I do something with acrylics, I hate about 90% of it. <laughs> and I just want to throw it away and never see it again. Um, I'm glad God isn't like me. And he doesn't notice defects and then want to burn the earth. Instead, he hates nothing that he's made. And whenever people have humility, they're welcome to receive the gift of forgiveness. Now, <clears throat> that's the predicate that Cranmer is basing his whole prayer on, and really his whole theology on. That's the great predicate. Now, everybody that you've ever met has a predicate. Everybody that you've ever met um, bases their life on a belief system or a faith system. I don't care if they claim to have faith or not. I'm totally disinterested in the question. They do, whether they admit to it or not. Um, everybody has a faith predicate. I was speaking to somebody, in fact, yesterday, who said, Ethan, I, I find it very interesting that you have this sort of Bronze Age mythos that you live with that brings you some sort of co a psychological consolation. I said, well, thank you for sharing. Um, um, and, uh, and, and he said, but, uh, but you know, I, I, I uh, just need you to know, I don't believe in anything. We are all headed toward the void, he said. We're all headed toward the void. And I thought to myself, well, you do believe in something, don't you? You believe in the void. <laughs> that is your higher power. That is your rock that is higher than I, the void. So your whole life will be lived under this um, pall of nihilism. And if you think that won't shape you, you're wrong. 
everybody has existential faith commitments uh, that are larger than they are. And it might be Sartre, and it might be a, a, a new uh, vision of inclusion, or it might be personal vendettas and vengeance. It might be intellectualism and being smart and winning arguments. It might be um, your disapproving parent that's still living in your head. It might be the void, but it's something. It's something. Everybody here has a predicate. Well, Cranmer's predicate was that God is real and not against you. God is not against you. God is not your enemy. God is not your antagonist. Why would Cranmer assume this? Because he believed that the um, essence of God's nature was revealed in a kind human being. That Jesus was the alpha and the omega of the great revelation. And that Jesus brings to you the fullness of the deity in a bodily way. So that you could know that God is not your antagonist but your God is the one who is present in the merciful Christ, the Christ who had the golden eyes of compassion. Uh, and so that's how he knows that God is for you and that God is the one who hates nothing that he's made. And so that's his acknowledgement. So he's praying in that direction. He's praying toward that one. He's attaching himself spiritually, and we are attaching spiritually to that same one. And then he asks for a favor. He makes a petition. He asks this God for something. He says, create, this is the next line, <clears throat> create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, we'll stop there because it's heavy enough, what's he asking for? He is asking that God would open your functional spiritual chest cavity and give you a replacement surgery. He is really saying that there's something about the human condition that is so off when it comes to its emotional core, its affective design, that it needs to be replaced. The, there needs to uh, be birthed in us a new nature or a new heart, and the heart was always understood to be the seat of the affections, the seat of great love. And we are given, according to Cranmer, by God, it's not a human invention, by God, this new heart. And notice how this new heart functions. Uh, it functions in a way that might surprise people, because some people, when they hear about the new heart that God promises in the Bible or in this prayer, they think that means a sinless heart. And therefore, they're puzzled when they, as a Christian, still uh, sometimes adore sin a little too much. Or... Uh, they, they find it puzzling that as a Christian, they, they feel great tension between who they ought to be and who they are. Um, or they feel like they should be more invincible. They shouldn't struggle like other people. But that is not the new heart that either Scripture or Cranmer has in mind. Instead, the new heart functions in a healthy way when it acknowledges sin as sin. That's how you can tell that the new heart is active in you. Not that you don't sin but that you see sin with greater clarity. You understand the great damage that it does to you, to the people that you love, to the people that you hate, and how it is uh, an aberration from God's design for your own flourishing. And so, this is a new heart that, according to Cranmer, worthily laments our sins and acknowledges our wretchedness. Now, what does that mean? It means that uh, you and I, that we are deeply troubled to our core, that sin is not an accidental peripheral mistake, but it is a defect of nature. 
and a new heart recognizes it as such and says, I I do have a problem. I have many, many problems, and I don't know what most of them are, but I know I'm a great contributor to the nightmarish scenario of the world, which is a very heavy thing, but that's the mark of the new heart that owns sin as sin. Now, the old heart, in contraposition to the new heart, the old heart tries to minimize or ignore or downplay or evade sin. The old heart is the Adamic heart, the Adam and Eve heart that runs into the forest so as not to be discovered, the heart that hides everything at all times and places. The old heart displaces sin, right? Meaning it always sees it in other people but not in itself. The old heart is always waiting for everybody else to repent, you know? Isn't it time? Isn't it time my idiotic family repents? Isn't it time my firstborn child repents? Isn't it time that my father finally owns up to his great fault in our family? Isn't it time that the government repents? Good luck. Isn't it time for my professor to repent and stop being so hard on me? Isn't it time for my boss to repent, my abuser to repent? The old heart also minimizes personal sin by little cliches and slogans like, well, nobody's perfect. I am who I am. I'm only acting this way because you triggered it minimizes personal responsibility. And the old heart also conceals. Conceals because it loves the sin and wants to just keep it going, or conceals because it's so ashamed that it thinks nobody's going to be able to handle this. When they really see, when they really perceive, they will leave me alone in the dust because I'm too hard to love. And so it's not worth the risk telling anybody anything of consequence. AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, has a great slogan, It says, we are only as sick as our secrets. Well, the new heart evidences its newness in that it begins to open up. It begins to blame a little less and own a little more, to confess a little more than it used to, to yearn for a just core, to yearn for alteration. That's the mark of the new heart that becomes sensitized to sin. So Cranmer acknowledges that God hates nothing that he's made. He asks that God would give us a new heart that beats with true affections. And then there's a beautiful outcome at the end of Cranmer's prayer. This is what he writes, that we may obtain of you the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness. Notice the the completeness language, all mercy and perfect remission and forgiveness. That's God's ultimate um, design for you. Not partial remission, that's what people do. Because nobody in this room, at least via another person, has been forgiven to the degree of 100%. Maybe somebody who really loves you a lot forgives you 87%, maybe, sometimes. But very few people have ever been forgiven to the degree that the person looks at you as if you never had sinned in the first place as if you were just uh, as glorious as Michael the Archangel. Very few people will look at you like that, if anybody. What's beautiful about God, though, is that God is not just a bigger person. In other words, God doesn't function like you, but just bigger. God has his own methodology of dealing with human beings, and it's perfect remission and forgiveness, 100%, for the road rage and for the abortion, for the hostility and for the affair, for the discourtesy and the blasphemy, for all of it. Uh, Now, I want you to note here the thing that's called perfect 
the thing that is given the word all, um, is not that we believe in perfect, uh, it's that we believe in perfect remission of sins, not perfect confession of sins. There are people in this room, and I sometimes number among them, that are a little too scrupulous. And you, you think to yourself, have I repented enough? Do I really trust enough? Have I changed enough to know that I'm really in, you know, that it's real? But all of those questions, sometimes they have their place, but if they haunt you too much, they'll just turn you back on yourself. This text doesn't say that you're going to have perfect contrition. It says that God has perfect forgiveness, and that's infinitely better. Part of perfect forgiveness means that Christ died for our flawed repentance and lousy faith. That's what it means. And that ultimately, because of the crucifixion of our Lord, not one charge stands against you because Christ has shattered the grammar of accusation. This is Cranmer's great prayer for us, that we would know true solace, that everything that we are and everything that we've done has been covered by the blood, that we stand at the foot of the cross in our blood-soaked clothes, not based on our own righteousness, but someone else's. That when we come to Jesus in that humble state, we are given everything. So Christ's, um, Cranmer's Ash Wednesday prayer invites God to disable the invisibeam. <laughs> our endless defensiveness, our hiddenness, our games, our self-righteous pageantry, all of it, because God is wooing us and He's convincing us that He's our home and that we can be safe here and vulnerable here and open up here. Other people might exploit your weaknesses, but Jesus would never do that. The one who sits on the throne of power is not your abuser but the one who was abused for your sake. And when we receive ashes tonight, friends, we are taking a public stand against our invisibeam defenses. We are expressing publicly our vulnerability and sin and neediness. And you'll notice that when you get smudged with ashes tonight. That smudge isn't just a dot. It, it's rubbed into your forehead in the sign of the cross, meaning no matter what you are, no matter what you bring, it's already known. And at the cross, it's already forgiven. And there is no shadow in the shade of the cross. Amen.